making effort with no hope at all is one of the most beautiful things that there is. You know, that's like bravery. And that's what I think we're doing here. This is the Hyperallergic Podcast. I'm Harag Vardini. That's Chinupe, an artist I met at the Osheti Sakawang camp next to the Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota. That's where he grew up and where I spent the Thanksgiving holiday. I was there when the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers announced it'll be ticketing and arresting people at the camp starting December 5th. They said it's for safety reasons because thousands have gathered there for months. They're protesting the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline, which is close to a cluster of Indian reservations, including the sixth largest Native American reservation in the country, Standing Rock. Native people fear the pipeline will pollute the Missouri River and harm their land. And there have been clashes with police. The Osheti Sakawang camp has a prominent art area that they call the art tent. And I wanted to find out which artists were going there and what kind of work they were producing. The first thing that struck me, though, was just how welcoming people were to me and my husband, Beacon, and a few of our friends. We flew from New York to Minneapolis and then drove for over seven hours to get there. The first second we arrived, we were greeted with open arms, and they even thanked us for arriving. I asked Chinupe, what was behind that warm greeting? That's pretty traditional. I mean, we're, we're in the situation in the United States because of that, you know, indigenous populations. We have like a kind of a root concept within our own small bands and communities that you're only as strong as your weakest, you know? And so there isn't the mentality of hoarding things. Like if you had a bunch of stuff and there was somebody hungry, you were a monster. You were disgusting. You know what I'm saying? So that that has carried over. It hasn't been that long that we haven't lived that way. A couple generations. And so that still, that still exists within us, like just genetic memory. And because this camp has only kind of like amplified within the last you know, month, I would say, as far as population goes, everybody who comes in gets greeted and shown that way. And it really talks about the power of social capital. You can only really affect what you can touch. And here, everybody's got to touch at some point. There's so many bottlenecks where everything comes together at one. And when you're greeted in that fashion, and then you go and set up camp, you're already acclimated to this idea of like, oh yeah, I could just be good. I don't have to posture. I don't have to puff, you know? I can just be kind and, and something really nice happens. So as the camp grows, because it has to come through that bottleneck and its initial like welcome that starts to feed and then when somebody sets up camp right next to you you have enough eggs this morning we've got some extra eggs you need a fork we actually have coals going you can cook right here that whole thing where it's like I can reach my little group that's surrounding me right now we're all so compacted in here that that ripples out all the way across. Chinupi has been working with other Native American and non-Native artists at the camp one of them is Dylan McLaughlin a Navajo filmmaker based in the Bay Area. He told me art is very much part of the Native American experience. Art making, I think, has always been a practice that has been very ingrained into all that, into a identity, into acknowledgement of land and of place and of language. Those are all art practices. And so it all stems, it all stems out of that very simply. 
and I think what we're doing is is a continuation and evolution of of that same thing. I mean, with our conversations and with our paints and with our sculptures, we're all carrying ourselves in an artful way here. Everybody. I mean, the songs that are sung in prayer yesterday, gorgeous, just just in- incredible. I mean, all of it, the signs, the people. It's all being done in a very artful manner, and I think we're all showing up and and um, having conversations that I think people have always had in these landscapes, but we're doing it in, I don't know, maybe a slightly different material manner now um, because of what we have access to because of the industrial world that we live in. I mean, the paints that we have access to and the materials, um, and we're sort of recycling all of that in a way that... <laughs> you hear a helicopter overhead, is that what that is? Yeah, right, yeah. Right. yeah. They, they, fly, they fly these planes in circles, literally in circles, over the camp all day. That wasn't the only helicopter I saw or heard. There were dozens of aircrafts and drones buzzing around all the time. Despite this constant sense of surveillance, the mood at the camp was mostly peaceful. There was the smell of firewood, car exhaust, cigarettes mingling in the air. It was part utopic, but there was definitely a dose of dystopia because you could see the police lines in the distance and even sometimes armored vehicles that seemed to sort of dart around in the landscape. Some tents were organized in circles, others appeared more random, and then many had signs so you could tell that the people there were either from Peru, Canada, Michigan, or elsewhere. We were told during the media orientation that all the press that arrives here is forced to take, that we have to ask people permission to take their photographs, or even of their possessions. We couldn't record ceremonies, music, or anything else without permission, unless it was at the front lines, where, because of the potential for conflict, they definitely wanted as much media attention as possible. Another artist, Jesse Hazlitt, is not native, but he was invited by Chinupe to join the efforts. Coming here, I didn't know really what to expect. I, I brought this large banner that I had painted with a friend in Portland, and um, just to give, but then I started seeing art being used as this big unifier. Um, like there's patches that everybody's putting on their backs, which creates like unity and kind of uniform mm-hmm. and solidarity. Like a lot of like the art is being used almost in a protective manner, like because they would be carrying banners across the line and holding it up but almost as a shield too um, from the water cannons and then they had the the banners just kind of as a as a front for the the police to be able to stare at you know normally you're making banners to carry in a protest so the city can see it but there's no city here to see it you know it's just it's a direct message to the oppressor so art is being used in many like strong ways like there's flags being made and um It's really beautiful seeing how it's going down. There are banners and signs everywhere. And the image of the black snake appears many places. Jesse explained to me why he was at Standing Rock. I brought a bunch of art stuff Mm -hmm. to donate, to give, but I mainly came here to listen and and just be a body and also to be a white shield for Chanupa Mm -hmm. so he can go home to his boys. I didn't come here with any intention of taking or any intention of ego like boosting you know i came here just to be and to be a vessel for whatever i'm needed for and because i i always go 
towards anything that's like human rights violations and I, there's just so many violations happening here I there was no way I couldn't come here and because of my white privilege I was able to be here and I own that and I accept that and I use my white privilege constantly to talk about issues affecting the world. Around every corner I met people who had just arrived or who were returning because they felt like they had to. This was clearly really important to them. Artists were part of that and they brought all their ideas to the table. One art project that's really captured people's imagination is the Mirror Shield project by Chinupe. I originally saw it in the Ukraine during the civil right there. I saw people holding mirrors up to the to the riot police and I saw how effective it was as a, as a symbol. This is the thing, there's a, there's a lot of protest that happens here, but the way that people protest in cities where there's gonna be a lot of people witnessing it and whatnot does not happen in the plains. We're isolated, we're in a quiet place. If you yell, if you make any sort of noise out here, there's not bystanders who are not partisan one way or the other. It can't be judged from that sort of way. So we had to come up with like a different way to protest because the police are ruthless in their practices. I mean, you saw Sunday night, they were spraying people with water and it was 20 degrees outside. Like that is, that's threat to life. There was a lot of stress at the camp. When I entered one of the tea houses, I saw a woman having an anxiety attack. Some people were clearly on edge, even if they were energized by being there. There's a palpable energy all around. It's hard to describe, but it definitely feels powerful. Artist Raven Chacon is from Albuquerque, New Mexico. He's part of the Post Commodity Collective, and they'll be in the next year's Whitney Biennial. I asked him how being there might impact his work going forward. I think the the starting point is is to observe, you know, and and, and view the different dynamics, social dynamics, uh, you know, that's that's happening in this. What's interesting to me is what is what's happening in this camp because it it seeks to be a, a microcosm of of larger global community, and uh, the way that people will decide to confront this snake uh, is is going to be important and. I, you know, I, I see different kinds of things. I see I see people trying to be helpful, but maybe uh, not always recognizing the, the the indigenous people who are from here. And um, you know, they're they're trying to do their best, but at the same time, I think uh, I think I think this is being the biggest, uh, most recent one of these kinds of actions that I think it's probably still a very young a, a child learning how to confront these these kind of monsters that we're up against in the 21st century. So, you know, for myself to make artwork here, it, a lot of it's coming about and evolving from discussions we've had this group here, uh, us four, is uh, is the power that we have in, in these voices that we're emitting out. So um, yesterday you had you had people going and yelling at the cops, you know, go home, and, you know, and, and at the same time, then there were instances where you just heard song, or, or even just silence, and that, those were the powerful moments, because the, the sheriffs, you know, the sheriffs and the police up there, the National Guard, they didn't know how to respond to silence, you know. The most commonly used slogan at Standing Rock is, water is life. It's a beautiful image that seems to resonate with everyone there. It's not only said, but appears on posters and patches, particularly at the back of people's jackets. 
The artists of these images aren't always known, but Asa Wright is one of them. He created images that have gone all over social media. He's Native American and based in Southern Oregon. He told me the event was historic because it's the first time that so many indigenous people of the Americas have come together around one cause. I think that's what really what Standing Rock is and what's gonna come from Standing Rock is just the realization that we don't have to wait for somebody to, to come and help us or save us and that we can actually do all that work on our own. And we can begin to start healing this historical trauma, this intergenerational trauma uh, from all this, you know, the history of genocide that we've had. I think that that's what, like the main thing overarching that I can see here is, is that people are, are beginning to find that healing on their own. And now we know that we can speak to our histories uh, and we can speak to what, what our future is gonna be. We get to define our future. There are so many artists there of all stripes and geographies. Yataka Fields is one of them, and he's a Native American from Oklahoma. The first time he came around, he had painted a piece of wood because he felt inspired, and soon it became someone's door. He told me that he decided to beautify the place. I wanted to leave something here for everybody, and there's all these signs and banners, you know, about what's happening with the snake and the oil and the no dapple and all this, but I wanted to create a piece and leave it here that was specific about the heart, the spirit, and the mind, and just the energy that's in that through colors and movement and certain objects that American Indians can all relate to with no signage, no words, but just energy, something they can look at and feel and be happy about. Because when you're in this camp, there's a lot of emotions. There's hate, there's love, there's stress. Um, you have the police and military state just over the hill. But I want this to kind of be a stress relief they can look at and kind of divert their eyes to something new and beautiful. Two powerful projects at Standing Rock, both of which challenge our understanding of what art can do in those circumstances, are by two Native American artists who have created a healing circle, as well as their monument quilt project, which they brought there. The latter is fashioned after the well-known AIDS quilt. To date, we've collected about 1,700 quilt squares from survivors of rape and abuse from across the U.S. That's Rebecca Nagel, one of the artists who organized the project. She hopes one day they'll be able to display the monument quilt on the mall in Washington, D.C. I was struck by the statistic, she told me. Eight in ten of us will be raped, abused, or stalked in our lifetime. And one in three Native women will be raped, abused, or stalked actually every year. Wow. And um, the majority of those perpetrators are non-native. So of those perpetrators, 96% are non-native. So unlike rape and abuse um, for other ethnic groups in the U.S., you know, we Native women are two and a half times more likely than any other ethnic group to be raped. And the majority of our perpetrators are non-native. And one of the laws that really contributes to that is um, tribal jurisdiction. So if I... Um, was on my tribe's land back in Oklahoma and somebody who is non-native sexually assaulted me, my tribe is prohibited from prosecuting that person. And that's for all crimes, so tribes can't prosecute people for murder, for rape, for theft, for child abuse, even for speeding. So like if you wanted to take your car and just speed through the Standing Rock Reservation, the tribal police wouldn't be able to do anything. 
And so what happens with sexual assault in Indian country is that it goes to the federal government, but then the federal government declines to prosecute the majority of the cases that they get. So there's basically this jurisdictional loophole where there's little to no justice. And people know that. People know that. And they come to frontline communities, you know, and then the oil industry makes it worse. So already North Dakota produces more oil than any other state in the U.S., Um, The majority of that oil extraction happens on tribal lands. And so you see in areas where there's been, since the oil boom in 2010, like the three affiliated tribes in the northern part of the state, advocates report, you know, a doubling and a tripling in calls for service. So the oil industry brings in these man camps that house thousands of men who work for periods of time and it has really increased sexual assault and abuse and also sex trafficking. Rebecca is based in Baltimore, and she organized the monument quilt with another Native American artist. Hello, my name is Gracie Horn. My bands are Assistant Wapton Dakota and um, Standing Rock Nation, Dakota, Lakota. And I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Gracie is a survivor of abuse herself as are most women she knows. We have no women in my family line that has not been uh, perpetrated. And so for me, it was like, we need to heal each other and we need to start helping all these families. So it does get hard to listen. But I think in my lifetime, I have always like been open been opening to open to listening to my aunts to my grandmother to my mother and so it's almost like being used to it you know because you can go into any indian home or a native home on the res and talking about it like people say yeah my my grand my grandfather was a victim yeah my grandmother was a victim from boarding school and so and then right now what we're being faced with with the missing and murdered indigenous women in canada it's like even more talked about and um, this I mean this was happening at the United Nations level in Minneapolis we had the World Peace Forum there and we brought that forward as as Native women to talk about it and so for me like I don't know what it is I think a person of color as a woman of color you're just so used to never having that like stability you know, and you're so used to hearing those stories that it's almost like that's not a problem. Then that's when it's really surprising. The pair have also organized women-only and Native women-only healing circles for survivors. Rebecca said their art piece has a therapeutic role. With the monument quilt, we lay the quilt out in these public spaces and we basically create a temporary monument to survivors and we create this is what public space would look like and feel like if we lived in a culture that honored survivors and that supported survivors and believed survivors and said you are not alone and so we through art can create those alternative spaces and that alternative reality and and I think we can't we can't build the world that we want to live in if we can't imagine it Mm -hmm. and I think that art can be a powerful part of that imagining. Soon after I finished my interviews on Friday, November 25th, the Standing Rock tribe announced that the Army Corps was planning to close public access to Osheti Sakawang Camp. This weekend, over a thousand Native American veterans are expected to converge at Standing Rock. 
The world will be watching as authorities say they will be ticketing and arresting the water protectors and their allies, and potentially the veterans, in order to move them all on the other side of the Cannonball River in an Orwellian-sounding free speech zone. The truth is, no one knows what's coming next. Visit hyperallergic.com for updates and the latest news about the story. In the next few days, we're going to try something new, and we'll be releasing two of the raw interviews I did at Standing Rock. One is a roundtable with artists Chanupe, Raven, Dylan, and Jesse. And then the next one will be a full interview with Rebecca and Gracie about their healing projects that grapple with sexual violence, particularly that directed at Native American women. I'm Rog Vartanian, editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. Our executive producer and editor is Giseli Rigatau. Our publisher is Viken Geikian. And Garen Geikian is the maestro behind our theme music. Thanks for listening. <laughs>